Scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to start in verse 22, go into chapter 21, and conclude at verse 11. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's one hopefully provided for you, near you, in front of you. This passage is located on page 61 in that Bible. Let us give attention to God's Word. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and bears, she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, and he shall be a slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God will stand forever. So God will apply the Ten Commandments specifically to cases over the next several chapters, and therefore these laws are often called case law because they're dealing with all different kinds of cases which might arise in the life of an Israelite, and they would have a question, how do I obey God in this particular instance or in that particular instance, or what if this happens? It's part of the ceremonial law. So therefore, they don't specifically apply to us today. It's been completed in Christ But there are general principles here of what God cares about, and therefore it generally does apply to us today. Firstly, we look at the priority of worship, and then secondly, the implications of worship. Firstly, in chapter 20, the first couple of verses, there is a a warning of idolatry. So there is the reminder in verse 22 of who God is, of what He's done for His people when He says, you have seen for yourselves. 
It's identical to chapter 19, verse 4, when he said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he's just concluded the Ten Commandments, but right here at the beginning is just a bit of a reminder of who God is and what he's done for his people. Chris Wright, not our favorite band player across the street. I'm going to go back to quoting the British scholar, Chris Wright. He says, chapter 19, verse 4, there is the reminder of God's redeeming action, but here the focus is on God's revealed word. So they are to follow what he's done and what he said. God is the one who has initiated a saving relationship. And therefore, there is the echo in verse 23 of the first and second commandments regarding false worship and the worship of idols. And everything he's about to say, he's going to say, this is who I am. Remember who I am. Remember what I did for you. But that's coupled with his revealed word. Now I'm telling you how to follow me in all these circumstances. And at the very beginning is a warning of idolatry, which is essentially false worship. Now you remember although it was over the course of months, the first four commandments told us how to love the Lord your God. It started there. It started with idolatry, with false worship, with using His name in vain, with not worshiping Him on the fourth, in the fourth commandment. Then it shifted to the other six, how to love your neighbor as yourself. And right here, the first warning right after the Ten Commandments is about worship. That's the priority of an Israelite's life. Who and what are they worshiping? And you might say, I'm sure they had a lot of other problems that needed to be addressed in their personal lives, but that's not where we're going to start. Where we're going to start is right back at the first couple of commandments. And he says very plainly, Don't make false images. That's of chief importance. Don't worship the creation. Worship the Creator and Him alone on the day that He designed and how He designed that to occur. And we know the story. It's only in a few chapters when He gets out of the case law. Moses goes up to receive these Ten Commandments to bring them down on tablets of stone, and what's occurring? Uh, The breaking of the first commandment, the second commandment, false worship, idol worship, and bedlam ensues with the beginning of false worship. Not obeying the first four commandments destroys our ability to obey the other six. I've said that over and over again during the Ten Commandments. So then, interestingly enough, after the warning on false worship, he gives the fact that the answer to the false worship is worship. If you look at verse 24, he says, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, and your peace offerings, your sheep, and your oxen. 
Now, we, we haven't gotten to the book of Leviticus yet on exactly how those things are supposed to happen properly in worship. But he's starting to introduce the antidote. Why am I chasing after false idols? Why am I worshiping the creation? Why do I worship at my stuff? There's a heart problem that can't be addressed out there. It has to be addressed in the heart with regard to worship. But so many things to pick up on just these couple of verses. 24 says an altar of earth can be made for these sacrifices. There are two different kinds. The burnt offering, which is usually a whole offering given up to the Lord, or a peace offering, which is often either participated together as a family or with the priest himself as they fellowship about their forgiveness. But again... The focus here right now is personal worship and family worship. Chris Wright will say, the simplicity of the altar then would have enabled such sacrifices to be offered at almost any time by any Israelite family. The worship is simple. It's accessible. It's not vain and it's focus on us. We make an altar of the earth. That's, that's sufficient. Anywhere I've caused my name to be remembered, anywhere, I'll be with you and I'll bless you. Just do this as the antidote to your idolatry. Again, the words of the Lord, in every place, where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Reminds us of Matthew 18, 20, where two or more are gathered in my name. There am I with them. Obviously, this isn't to take away from the corporate gathering, but the tabernacle instructions have not been given yet. That's in a few chapters. The priest and his garments and his role, that's not been given yet. And those things won't replace the need for personal worship or family worship. There's an accessibility here that regardless of your status, regardless of your income, regardless of your ability, you can worship. You can worship the God rightly. And you should. Well, the, the prohibitions in verses 25 and 26 regarding hewn stone and nakedness, they point probably to common Canaanite practices of having fancy altars for their gods. And obviously lewdness in their practices of worship, which I will not go into detail here. God is saying something totally different. There's a, a way to worship Him. There's a way he's prescribed, but there's also a simplicity, an accessibility that, that should not need to be elaborate based on income or intellect. One commentator says that the book of the covenant, which chapters 21 to 24 are commonly called, they highlight the obligations placed upon the Israelites in order for them to be a holy nation living under the authority of God to create an identity for the Israelites by distinguishing them from other nations. 
What, what's the first thing that's going to distinguish these Israelites before they go into the land of the Canaanites? How they worship, who they worship, what they're willing to tolerate in worship. This is an exact distancing of this nation from all of the other religions near them. They're not only monotheistic, but they worship in a completely different way. That's going to be a very distinguishing mark. But also, this this answer to the human idolatry in worship, how does this happen? It is a reminder in their actual worship of who God is what he's already done for them, which has already been mentioned. Verse 22. What are they doing when they are eventually told in the book of Leviticus to bring this type of animal to the priest that it may be sacrificed on the altar? They're recognizing God's holiness. They're recognizing his otherness. They're recognizing their own sin. They're recognizing Those two things can't go together. And for them to be in a relationship with God, to them to be even near God, blood has to be spilt. A life has to be given. And it's accepted. It's actually accepted by God. They walk away with thanksgiving. They walk away experiencing forgiveness and mercy. All of that happens when and where? In worship. All of that was stated in the preamble to the Ten Commandments. Who's giving you the law? The one who saved you out of slavery. So the law is not a way of achieving a relationship with me. It's a way of living out that relationship that's already been given. He has relieved them from the burden of slavery. But obviously, the whole sacrificial system, the whole salvation event in the book of Exodus is pointing us to a salvation from sin itself. The ultimate slavery. So therefore, in our worship, as I am starting to remind us at the beginning weekly, words from Matthew 11. Come to me, Jesus says. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, unlike anything else you're going to serve, unlike your own sinful heart, which is never satisfied, unlike all of the things that the culture puts on you to achieve and do and say to be accepted, it's burdensome, it's heavy. It's crushing. It's life-altering. But Jesus, in those words, is giving us a picture of what happens in worship. There's rest. There's rest from sin. There's the reminder of the gospel. There's a reminder for us in the new covenant. The crucifixion of the resurrection. That we simply can't live without being reminded of on a regular basis Personal, family, corporate worship. Because, as Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. What's the answer? 
The answer to false worship is true worship. Right before he gets into all these other scenarios, this is the focus. Back on the first four commandments. Before we get into all the applications of all the other situations in life, we have to go back into the idea of worship. Why? We can't do any of the other stuff without it. Questions for us would be, are we building our altar? Of course, there is no more altar. We don't have an altar that's been replaced and done with. We don't offer animal sacrifices. The ultimate sacrifice was already given. The Lamb of God was slain to take away the sins of the world. But are we building in our own hearts an altar where we worship on a regular basis? We can look at all the symptoms of our family's dysfunction, relationally, emotionally, busyness, stress, and anxiety. And we could try to fix all of these other things. Do we look at the first four commandments as maybe containing an answer to any of it? Personally, in the family, and even here in corporate worship. Our worship is supposed to be simple without necessarily minding what, what other people do with regards to theatrics, drama, big appeal, seeker-friendly, seeker-sensitive. God has no mind for what everybody else is doing but is simply instructing his people what to do in the simplicity of an altar from the earth, which is accessible. This doesn't mean we don't need to have a, a building. We're very thankful for this building. We'd be thankful for a bigger one. doesn't mean those things are frivolous. What's the purpose of them? The purpose of them, though, is to worship. Worship the Lord, not worship ourselves or our stuff. Is our worship primarily for non-believers or for evangelism? No. It's not. It's for the edification and the perfecting of the saints, according to the confession. In a book I read with some of our officer candidates, Terry Johnson's book, Reformed Worship, he makes that exact point. Of course I preach as if there's always non-believers present with us, that they would hear the gospel and respond that the table would be fenced before we come to communion. That I, was all, I would always invite people to talk afterward. But you are reminded of who God is and what He has done for you in and through His Son, primarily in worship, which is the focus of every sermon and the focus of the table itself. Because the priority in our lives is worship, true worship. But then what would the implications of all of that be? Two things that I will say briefly this morning. Caring for the vulnerable worker and caring for the vulnerable indebted. You might be thinking, what on earth has that got to do with everything you just said? Friends, 
If you and I aren't connecting Sunday to Monday, that's our fault. If you see no relevance to anything that I say or anything that's done on the first day of the week to everything that you do on the other six, that's not the the fault of the Lord or the Bible. It's our misunderstanding. Why on earth would he talk about idolatry and worship before getting into the most desperate mercy ministry situations in chapter 21? Because they go together. How on earth are they going to care for anybody who's vulnerable if they don't first recognize that's what we were? These are Israelites who don't have a home themselves. Why did they have a home that they're, they're going to because of redemption? But that has implications for the vulnerable. Chapter 21 Verses 1 through 6, the first implication of the worship of God's people is the care for the vulnerable worker. What is meant by Hebrew slave? Well, it could be translated worker. It can mean uh, that a worker. It doesn't seem to be what's discussed here. It could mean someone who's purchased without legal freedom or acquired as a prisoner of war, which was often done. It can mean an Israelite who sells himself to his creditor to work off a debt, which is probably what's discussed here. It isn't the same as our understanding of slavery, clearly. The next several verses are a complete assault on our modern understanding of slavery. The Bible has nothing to do with that garbage, and it never did. And so we have to take away our 19th and 18th century understandings of what this word means, first and foremost. Back to Chris Wright. It seems most likely that the word here applies to a category of people who, either because they were somehow detached from the Israelite tribal system and had no land of their own, or because they were so indebted that they had no other option, had sold themselves and their labor to an Israelite land-owning family. The word Hebrew here could refer to a very poor Israelite or even maybe a non-Israelite who was living near them. So the main question then is how are they to be cared for? Well, that's just a fact of life. There's no uh, federal safety net in the land of Israel where they're going. There won't be. Uh, There's no banking system. There's no credit system. There's not really a loan system. There's no health care. So what do we do? How do we fix this? Well, there's a priority here that people in this situation have to be cared for. The vulnerable. Verse 2 is clear that the person who sells themselves or their family is in servitude, but their debt can't last forever. Their debt can't last forever. This individual or their family would have to be released on the seventh year according to the sabbatical understanding. And I want you to understand, I know this is otherworldly compared to our life, but in the context of their life, this is shocking. 
This is shockingly liberal with regards to how to care for people who you could easily exploit and take advantage of. That's not allowed. Verse 3 states his marital status must be respected. This poor person can't have his marriage destroyed because of his financial situation by a landowner who has the power to rule over him. That's not allowed. Verse 4, however, protects the landowner. If he paid significant money or for a dowry, maybe, for the man's wife or in providing for his family for many, many years, he may have to leave his wife and family with the master. However, in those situations, that man could have just postponed his wedding to deal with his own personal debt before he gets married. And also, Deuteronomy 15.12 seems to indicate that there is a sunsetting of this very provision in this verse because the marriage must be respected. Verses 5 and 6 indicate the worker and his family can also choose to stay with the landowner if they want. That's their decision. This is madness for an Assyrian or a Babylonian or an Egyptian. As we just read last fall, what happened to the Israelites? They had no human rights. They had no Sabbath. They had no day off. Their their human rights were never respected. They were brutalized. Their marriages were probably destroyed. But when God saved His people and is bringing them to their own land, he's saying, that's not what you're going to do. There is going to be an amazing amount of justice reflecting God's holiness for vulnerable people who have themselves in a situation that is devastating, that they need help with. None of these would have been seen necessarily in most other nations. God is setting down human rights law that's unprecedented. That should be a witness, that should be a light and a guide to the nations. That when an Egyptian or an Assyrian or a Babylonian walks through the land and interacts with someone in Israel, they must say, why on earth would you care about these people? You can steal from them. You can destroy them. You can take advantage of them. So why don't you do that? That's human nature. And they say, that's not who our God is. He took us out of that menacing garbage in Egypt. He cared for us. He saved us. That impacts my daily life, Monday through Saturday. And this is how it does. A landowner who has bonded servants would treat in Israel, Lord willing, those who work for him so well that those people would never want to leave. But the decision would be theirs and not the landowners. Shocking. But verses 7 to 11 show care for the vulnerable who are indebted. Verses 7 through 11 specifically reference 
females. And this is going to be a topic that I've, not just with regard to females, but Sean and Bob are going to introduce the study committee report in Sunday school for the next three weeks. Where would we see care for the vulnerable and indebted, especially females in Scripture? I'm glad you asked in chapter 21, verses 7 to 11. They speak directly to the workers of female members, be it wife or daughters, when there is a sense of indebtedness. You can imagine then and today that there are all kinds of opportunities for exploitation and abuse. And God says no to all of that. He always has. Verses 7 to 8 make it clear that the wife or daughter of the servant could be given to or acquired by the landowner. But what exactly would that mean? Well, again, in this cultural context, the landowner himself probably spent tons of resources and money to provide for this man and possibly his family if he's married. If he ends up losing himself, sons or daughters, he has no retirement. He has no safety net. He has no way of maintaining his own land, of keeping his own land. His whole family goes into poverty. So you have some sense of a concubine situation for the purpose of bearing children. If the land owner deals wrongly in any way in this situation, there are consequences. What would they be? It says, verse 8, if he is uh, wrong in any way to this to this female, he gives her back to her family. He is not allowed to sell the debt that this family owns and sell the woman to a foreigner. Why? Opens up all kinds of human rights abuse issues because foreign nations have no care or concern for the Ten Commandments or anything that God's written or said. Any Trafficking is not allowed. Trafficking of any kind of anyone, not allowed. Verse 9 makes it clear that the landowner might need to give this individual female to his son, maybe on his part of the property for helping for certain areas of the property. But if he was to do so, then she's treated as a daughter. Again, her person is respected. Verse 10, it states, the landowner may end up having another wife, maybe already, or he ends up getting married, but he is to do nothing against the prior woman's food, clothing, marital rights. There is no excuse for not taking care of this woman. All excuses are removed. Verse 11 states that if these three things are not done, that could be referencing the previous three verses. It could be in reference to the food, clothing, marital rights. I really don't know. But he says, if there is any area that we've discussed where there's something that's gone wrong, there's been any kind of exploitation or abuse, just just read what verse 11 says. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing. 
without payment of money. This is someone who, in modern society at the time, has no rights, has no say. But in God's economy, she does. There will be no exploitation. There will be no abuse. There will be no excuses. And if anything does actually happen, regardless of whatever the landowner paid for the debt of this whole family, tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars, oxen, sheep, whatever it was, he loses all of it. There are obviously massive implications here for us in the workplace and also in the church. If we're in the workplace, we're not to take advantage of anybody below us for any reason. No mistreatment, no exploitation, no abuse, no excuse. The same thing in the church. Shepherds don't abuse sheep. Shepherds step in when sheep abuse other sheep. We report as a matter of obligation any of these circumstances. We have church courts which should uphold God's justice in all of these circumstances. Any type of abuse. What's undergirding all of that? Not simply the American legal system. God's law. This is who God is. He has shown that He cares for the vulnerable. He provides for them legally. He did that in the Exodus. The Israelites had no rights. They had no say. They had no Sabbath. God comes in and takes them for His own. Pictured for us ultimately in what He did for us through His Son. That's what we're reminded of. Private worship, family worship, and corporate worship. But Sunday connects to Monday. God gets the final say in how you run your business, in how you run your family, in how you use your body. God gets to tell you what to do. Not you. And when we fail significantly in those areas, there are consequences because the wages of sin is death. But friends, may we be encouraged that in the midst of these devastating circumstances, the light of Christ is to shine from our worship into our everyday living, into the darkness of this world that we currently reside in. May it be so of us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these general principles, recognizing that so much of this cultural situation is not relevant to us. But these general principles of caring for the vulnerable, of not allowing trafficking, exploitation, abuse of any kind, is obviously relevant today, maybe now more than ever. Lord Jesus, would you bless us individually and as families as we process some of these hard things. 
As we do so momentarily in adult Sunday school, we pray all this would be to the glory of your name. Amen.